cell phones. Oh, hello. All right, now I, should we turn it down? Boy, that's loud. Okay, <laughs> way back there, I'm sure you can hear me now. <laughs> okay, I was just saying, hospitality, we're working through this series. George mentioned in the first sermon how the word hospitality, the Greek word, literally means loving strangers. And I've been reading the books that Lawrence and George recommended, uh, the Bonhoeffer book, Life in Community, and the Butterfield book, um, Gospel Comes with a House Key. And actually, Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, she calls it radically ordinary hospitality. And I have some quotes here from her book that I thought were just really good. She says, radically ordinary hospitality means using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and deed. If you're prohibited from using your living space in that way, it counts if you support in some way some household in your church that is doing it. And then she also goes on to say, radically ordinary hospitality is indeed spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare is what we engage in when temptation is clobbering us again and Satan is winning, tearing us, our Christian witness, and our families apart. So today, we're looking at the challenges to women in hospitality. I do find it a sobering subject, a serious subject. And that First Timothy passage um, is really one of spiritual warfare. And one last quote before we jump into the text. Um, Butterfield also says, first, before we do this, hospitality. We must live under the authority of God and church if we are to call others to live differently. We must be teachable. We have no business calling our neighbors to live differently if we don't. So if we look at that 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, just some historical and cultural background. Um, George mentioned this last week. Um, when he preached on 2, 1 through 7. But, um, so Paul's writing to Timothy, who was left overseeing a large metropolis. I think it was one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire. And Timothy, like if you read more traditional commentaries, he's often called a bishop. He was an overseer of overseers. He was overseeing many elders of house churches. I mean, excuse me, of churches. Um, again, Ephesus is a prosperous area. And if you're up on your Roman Greco writers, you would know that there's a lot of literature that shows that um, women used various forms of contraception during that time period, including abortion, infanticide, and abandonment. They were widely, widely practiced. One writer, Serenus, in his work, Gynecology, he even discusses several detailed practices, instructions for women so that they could abort. Um, and there were various reasons for abortions. They could include concern for a young woman's frame, if her frame was small, the implications, you know, maybe it wouldn't be good for her health to have a baby. Could be for adultery. It was also simply for a woman trying to safeguard her youthful figure. Um, and then there were commentators of the day who associated abortions 
with women of affluence, of leisure, even laziness. It was this um, view was likely pervasive uh, because uh, Josephus, if you're familiar with him, in his apologetic writings to Jewish families, he warned against having abortions and making away with the fetus. And even early Christian literature, like the Didache Epistle of Barnabas, had commandments against abortion and abandonment. In addition, it wasn't uncommon, even a pervasive practice, for women to hire a wet nurse, simply so that she wouldn't have to expend herself throughout the day with the demands of nursing an infant. Um, and again, most often, uh, the reason was just to um, preserve her energy and usefulness, even though a lot of social commentaries and intellectuals of the day support it, nursing your own child versus hiring a wet nurse, and for some surprisingly modern reasons, like to increase the bond between the mother and child. And so I share a lot of that because we can have this idealized sentiment that, oh, today things are so hard, but if we could just go to back then, whatever back then is. But actually, like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. At least the documentation we have for the last 2,000 years is the things women struggle with today was present 2,000 years ago to the audience that Paul was writing to or the, to Timothy, who was ministering in Ephesus. So again, Timothy was left, um, again, like George pointed out, um, to ensure that sound doctrine was being taught. So that 1 Timothy 2.15 passage, he pointedly tells Timothy, I left you in Ephesus so that you can know how one ought to act in the household of God, the church, a pillar and support of the truth. And then, just a reminder, too, again, I keep saying back, yet last week, George talked about 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. And this context that Tana read for women is in the context of evangelism. God is calling us to pray and live a peaceful and quiet life for unity, for the progress of the gospel, so that other people can come to the saving knowledge of the truth. That's why we follow these precepts. And so when we look at verses 9 through 15, there's really four core concepts that we see in there. Beauty, submission, deception, and childbirth or child rearing. And so the first one, beauty. If we look in verses, I might just reread those. Um, 9 and 10, it says, Likewise also that a woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Again, that likewise part is saying, so that others can come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul is bringing up beauty to address most likely affluent women, affluent women who were influencing others, because it would be affluent women who could afford gold and pearls and costly attire. 
And what he's really saying is how one ought to act in the household of God is not for showing off beauty. It's not for showing off wealth. He's saying what's attractive to God, right? It says uh, in, I think it is, 2-3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. What's attractive to God and to a lost and hurting world is good works. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And it seems, too, that this passage is warning against using beauty, womanly attributes to manipulate or control, because then it transitions from beauty into submission. And George already mentioned verses um, 11 through 12 and the elders' perspective on that. Last summer, we did a series on gender roles. Um, I think George did a post on the realm of what that meant. And the elders went to various house churches to ensure the sound protection of that teaching. And that submission word means to yield, to put yourself under one's authority. It doesn't mean to be abused or objectified. And they, in that verse 12, the teach or to exercise authority, the elders and the church's understanding of that is that authoritative teaching, the protection of sound doctrine is done by the elders. When I stand up here and teach, I'm under the elders' authority. And even just a little, I don't think a lot of people know my background. Um, the reason... I'm even up here teaching is because of my husband, of being submissive to my husband. When we started with this church about 10 years ago, and he started going to what's similar to the Equip 3 classes now, um, he wanted me to come with him. And he wanted me to come with him for a couple reasons. One, he knows me well. He knows I enjoy that. That's not burdensome to me, that's enjoyable to read and study and write. But also, he didn't want to be off learning something that I wasn't a part of. He wanted us to be united in our learning. And then, so, I was at home, homeschooling then the kids. He was working full-time. A lot of times, I would read the academic writing, highlight it, make notes. Then we'd sit down together and write papers. Somewhere along the line, I remember George asking us to write our own papers. I don't know for sure why. I think it was so that my views and his views could be clear. Um, and then I continued to take classes under Lawrence and George as I was part of the ministry team. I went to trainings that the churches invited me to, actually told me to go to, namely Redemption Group. I was not looking forward to that. Divorcing from my daily life to go off to Seattle for a week, sleep in someone's house, for intensive training. If you've done the intensive redemption group, that's a weekend. I had to do it for a whole week. I was not looking forward to that, but I went. <laughs> and it was good that I went. You know, and through all that study, somewhere along the line, I started to sense, my husband started to sense too, that I had some gifting 
in teaching and writing and interpretation. But my attitude was that if God had given me these giftings, I'm sure he'll open the doors for me to use them. I never knew if it was quite right for me as a woman in the role of a woman to teach to a mixed group. I wasn't completely comfortable with that. And so I just kept praying. I'm like, God, if you want me to use this, if you've given me these gifts to build up the church, then I trust <laughs> you're going to open up the doors. I don't need to, I don't think I've ever asked to preach or teach. I've been asked. I, I trust God. There's been times where I've desired it, and I've wanted to do it, and I've prayed for it, but I've waited. And even like last summer, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, if you just submit, everything's, you're going to get whatever you want. <laughs> I don't, if you've been a Christian long, you know the Lord normally doesn't work that way. Um, but so last summer, I taught publicly three times, and then they asked me to teach in the spring, and because of my job, I just didn't think I could. And then it was the end of May, and I was like, oh, nobody asked me for the summer. And so I was disappointed. I was like, oh, well, I guess I won't get to teach during the summer. And I thought, you know what? If God gave me these gifts just to preach and teach, three times, then okay. That's what he's given it for. God's given the gifts. I'm going to look for ways to serve him that he opens up. If he's given them to us, I think he will be confident to open those doors for us. We can be confident that he will open up those doors. And I can just say personally too, just the last thing, in my own personal experience, when I have submitted to authorities in my life, I have just felt more empowerment from the power of the Holy Spirit. I often say it feels like canoeing upstream versus downstream. When I submit, it's like I'm jumping in the flow with the current, and it's a lot less effort. The Spirit is opening up the doors. So there are authorities in the kingdom of God. Michelle Lee Barnwell in her book, neither complementarian nor egalitarian, talks about biblical hierarchies. She talks about the hierarchies present in the Trinity. Jesus called God the Father. Hierarchies in the family of God. Jesus is the firstborn. We come after him. We are only heirs because of the firstborn. There was hierarchies in Jesus' earthly ministry. The 12 were closer to him than the other who followed. And even within the 12, there were three who were even closer and had more opportunities. There's hierarchies in the church with the appointment of elders. And even within elders, some have double honor, it tells us, to give to those who preach and teach. And there's hierarchies between Jews and Gentiles. It says in Romans 11 that the Jews will bring in the final blessing. And I have a couple quotes from Barnwell, too, so I put those up here. This, is, this was a book that the elders recommended last summer. Um, so Michelle Lee Barnwell says, the point is not so much whether hierarchies are present as it is what they mean. In the kingdom of God, values of power and privilege are turned upside down and they're upended according to the new values of the kingdom as seen in Christ himself. Christ's statements such as the last shall be first and the first last and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all demonstrates what hierarchies mean in the kingdom. And we have Jesus' powerful example of giving up his rights and privileges as God in order to come underneath us and serve us 
in Philippians 2. It's love and unity, not equality, that we should pursue for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Lee Barnwell addresses the reversal theme, the reversal that it's no longer the most powerful who gets to be served. It's no longer uh, worldly evaluations that all the wise are the ones with all the understanding. Reversals of who is included. And she says this reversal theme is found throughout scripture and its integration into the church's calling as a holy nation. She states, the theme of the inclusion of the outsider and the application of God's reversals challenges traditional categories. Again, love, not equality, leads to the true unity that Paul describes in which members may have the same care for one another. Equality speaks to one's personal privileges and rights, whereas love describes one's willingness to prioritize others. Paul doesn't deny the importance of rights, but asserts that there is a more transcendent way. Paul's example of giving up his rights as an apostle. Christ's, again, ultimate example of giving up privileges in Philippians 2. And believers giving up legitimate rights and freedoms to support the weaker believer from stumbling in 1 Corinthians 8. In all these examples, people are called to give up privileges for the sake of the gospel and unity in the church. The willingness to serve, even sacrifice, for the good of another is the essence of love in the New Testament. Women, we are called to submit, to submit to male authority, to our elders, to our husbands, if we're married, it doesn't mean we have less value. Galatians 3.28 makes it clear that in Christ there are no more distinctions. But the church needs women acting in their role as women. We were created to be helpers, sustainers. That word in uh, Genesis 2.18 where Eve was created as a helper literally means sustainer. That's what the point of verse 13 is saying where Adam was created first and then Eve. God is called Israel's helper or sustainer, that same word throughout Isaiah, namely uh, chapters 41 and 50. It's not a less than calling. It's a very big calling. And the church needs male and female image bearers of a holy God, right? Genesis 127 says, let us make man in our image, male and female. Women, we need to live in our role as sustainers, fulfilling our calling as female image bearers of a holy God. And then when the church is united with male and female image bearers of a holy God, there is a more full, vibrant image sharing of the gospel, a multifaceted understanding of God's love to a watching and hurting world. I know for myself, when I'm not living in that role, when I'm trying to be something or someone I wasn't created to be, not only is the spirit quenched in my life, 
but it's normally attached to fear. And a lot of times those fears come out of deception. And that really goes into the third concept we see in these verses. Deception's an important theme throughout Scripture, and it really starts in Genesis 3.1. Genesis 3.1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. And Bar Ephrat, in his book, Narrative Art, he taught at, um, oh, it was in Jerusalem at a Hebrew university. Um, he's an authority on the Hebrew language but he's a, and literature. He notes that direct characterization is rare in biblical narratives. And when it does occur, the trait noted by the narrator is always extremely important in the development of the plot. And Lee Barnwell goes further. She says, the story emphasizes the serpent's craftiness as an explanation for Eve's deception. There's no corresponding description of Eve, especially in terms of her gullibility. So 1 Timothy 2.14 is not saying that women are more gullible than men. 3.1, Genesis 3.1 making, is making it clear that deception is the work of Satan. And then I got one more quote here from Barnwell. Um, but it is making the point. Eve's deception begins a chain of events that ultimately leads to the consequences for which Adam is responsible. Death and the cursing of the ground. That she is the critical link in this tragic turn of events is particularly ironic when she was created to be his helper, his sustainer. If Adam is the prototype of those who will disobey God, Eve is the first in line of those who turn from God and the truth because they are deceived with disastrous results. Adam is clearly implicated in sin and the curse. Paul talks about it clearly in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's used in Job 31. And two times, Eve is connected with deception. Once, Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 11 to simply warn the church about Satan's deception. And then it's used here. And it's interesting to me that one thing Satan used to deceive Eve in Genesis 3 was beauty, which is a concept we see here in 1 Timothy, right? It said the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Women, we can be deceived by beauty. I'm not saying that men can't be deceived by those things or that only women have this challenge, but I am saying that we need to take this to heart because this deception is at the fabric of unity and being female image bearers of a holy God if we don't take these exhortations to heart. You know, and I would ask too, can we connect Paul's warnings in 1 Timothy 2 to what we do place value on? Like how much value do we place on beauty? And how much value do we place on the imperishable beauty of good works, like the good work of childbirth, of child rearing. Do we place the same value that we put on beauty 
as we do on childbirth and infant rearing? Do we place more value on raising kids and having babies? Or do we place more value on beauty? George had suggested the scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, to go with this series topic, this topic, Challenges on Women. And it really resonated with me. And so I, I wanted to work through this passage. But I kept thinking, I don't know. <laughs> and I certainly don't ever want to use myself as like the normative example of women throughout time and culture. Um, so I just kept reading and praying. I'd read all of 1 Timothy. I'd read all of 1 Peter. I read all of Genesis. I read different books. And 1 Timothy 2 and Genesis 3, like I've already said, it was interesting that those same four concepts are in each passage. Beauty, submission, deception, and childbirth. And remember the audience, the societal background that Paul's writing to. It wasn't uncommon for affluent women who would be influencing society, who would influence the church to disregard childbirth and infant care out of a desire to stay beautiful, to stay young, to stay youthful, to not age prematurely, to enjoy leisure, even out of just laziness. Again, it was so pervasive. Josephus warned Jewish communities. Early Christian literature was warning the church. I don't think it's any different in our modern culture. There's a disregard for giving birth and raising children for a lot of the same reasons as back in the when Ephesians and 1 Timothy was written. And maybe we have more. You know, we can also see it as an obstacle to our goals, our ambitions, our personal pursuits. But really, I would submit that we should value pregnancy and childbirth because really they're an exemplar of good works. If you have kids, <laughs> you know. It's almost like the epitome of Christ-like service, good works, of giving up your rights and your privileges and your freedoms to serve another And I think in our culture, we do anything but celebrate it. I remember, this was back a while ago, I was watching um, a talk show. And the host was a female, and the um, guest was a female. And the guest was pregnant, and the host had never been pregnant. And the host was asking the guest different questions. And the guest was explaining pregnancy. And then the host said, oh, it's like, sounds like having an alien in your body. You know, which is funny but we, we make fun of it, we begrudge it, we anesthetize ourselves from it. We seem to do anything but value and celebrate it. But I also wanna be clear what this passage is not saying. It's not saying you're more holy or righteous or virtuous if you have kids or the more kids you have. Um, you know, uh, Isaiah 54, and then it has a parallel passage in Galatians, and then Jesus' words in Luke um, all say something to the effect about the barren should rejoice more 
than the one who has children. We also need to celebrate singleness because there are things that singles can do that parents and mothers of young children cannot or should not do. And it's ironic to me, and I think it's just a sign that this is another area where the enemy deceives us. On the one hand, if we have kids, at some point, if you're honest, you're going to begrudge it. You're going to be like, really? <laughs> I have some neighbor friends we just met recently. They went out to do some serious shopping of a large purchase. They brought their child. They're like, I see now why grizzly mama bear sometimes killed her cubs. I mean, there are things that happen that are a test. And yet, ironically, on the other hand, women I talk to who have struggled with infertility feel shame, like there's something wrong with their body. So on the one hand, when we can have kids, we begrudge it, we make fun of it. And when we can't have kids, we take on shame. I think it's just another area where the enemy is deceiving us. And then finally, the passage talks about women will be saved through childbearing. And I think if we want to work through the scriptures well, we should ask, from what shall we be saved? And I think the logical conclusion would be saved from deception. The deception that beauty and independence is going to give us fulfillment and control and peace and satisfaction. Remember, too, I know at some point I've heard George preach on that passage saying that, that um, saved means to be um, delivered, sustained, you could say more holy, sanctified. And again, if you've gone through childbirth, if you've raised infants and the demanding schedule of taking care of an infant, you know that you do grow in love and service in that and so I think that is true, that through childbirth, we do become more sanctified. But I think, too, just we women in general, when we just value childbirth and child-rearing more than physical beauty, power, control, we also grow in sanctity. Um, the, pass or the bulletin also has 1 Peter 3 in it. There is not enough time to cover that. Um, that's why Tana didn't read it. But I do just want to make a token nod real quick, and it, it'll be in the study guide too, um, of the same four topics that are in Genesis 3 and 1 Timothy 2 are also in 1 Peter 3. Beauty, submission, deception, and childbirth. And in addition, in the 1 Peter 3, it's also attached to a Christian witness and spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 2 says, so that by doing good, we can silence the ignorance of foolish people. That comes before the 1 Peter 3. That's in your bulletin. And then right after the instructions to wives, it says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So what does all this have to do with hospitality? Again, Butterfield said, radically ordinary hospitality is indeed spiritual warfare, and spiritual warfare is what we engage in when temptation is clobbering us again, and Satan is winning, tearing us, our Christian witness, and our families apart. And first, we must live under the authority of God in church if we are to call others to live differently. We must be teachable. 
We've got no business calling our neighbors to live differently if we don't. So how do we destroy, to use language in 1 Peter, arguments and lofty opinions? How do we silence foolish talk? Not by anger and arguments like George talked about last week. How do we use hospitality to witness in this postmodern society? Maybe, just maybe, it's by not focusing so much on beauty and appearances, but more on good works. Just take stock of your life. How many hours do I spend on beauty and making things beautiful with an attitude to impress others? And how many hours do I spend on good works? Christian hospitality isn't about, you know, putting out some beautiful fanfare to impress others. It's about table fellowship. Loving strangers at your table, at your home, or wherever you can go to provide and care for others. I think Romans 12 talks about trying to outdo one another with good works and hospitality. I would encourage everybody to read the Butterfield book. She does come out very strong. I think as you read it, don't feel like you need to be Rosaria Butterfield. The world doesn't need another Rosaria Butterfield, but it does need one. And she has great ideas to exhort us and encourage us. She has simple things like if you like to shop at Costco, and I know a lot of people who like to shop at Costco. I do not like to shop at Costco, but I know a lot of other people do. And every week she goes to Costco the same day, and the day before that, she always texts her neighbors, I'm going to Costco, anything you need? If you love to shop at Costco, that would be a beautiful thing. I would, I would be a neighbor who would love that. You could do that for me. She also has some more radical things like fostering children, which we had two families in our church talk about their experiences and how to be a part of that. You could love your neighbor who's in jail. Pray. God will show you what he has for you. How else can we silence foolish talk? Rather than being independent, unsubmissive, submit and be teachable to the authorities in your life. Be willing to be the male or female image bearer that God created you to be with your distinct roles based on those sexual differences. The gender identity that emerges from that is not cultural, it's biblical. Rosaria Butterfield also says it's hard to live up to this calling. That's why God gave us the Bible and the church. And if we attach that to Colossians 3.10, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. We're not these isolated agents doing random acts of kindness. We're to be the united church displaying the full gospel to a hurting world. And it's pleasing to God. That's a great place to be in. Thirdly, be alert and watchful and prayerful. Our adversary, the devil, is prowling around looking for someone to deceive and destroy. Study the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. Have people speak into your life through your house church, in your household, Apply the scriptures through the Spirit and pray for your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbor so you know what you can be praying for and how you can provide care they need. And finally, 
rather than disregarding or maybe even begrudging family, pregnancy, childbirth, raising infants, celebrate it and participate in it and support it in whatever roles you can. Childcare doesn't get in the way of witnessing. It actually enhances it. But I'm going to stop there because that's going to be next week's sermon. So let me pray for us, and then I think we have some time for Q&A.